All right, if you haven't already, please take your Bibles and turn in them to Galatians chapter 6. This is, what's the fancy word for it? The penultimate. The penultimate. You're like, what does that mean? It's the one before the last. Okay, so uh, this is the second to last lesson in Galatians. So we're going to get, it seems like 21 lessons that's, Seven times three, so that's perfection three times over. Uh, no, okay. But, uh, no, 21 lessons, though. That's, that's not bad, not bad. Not bad. You guys been enjoying the study through Galatians? I know, I, I've enjoyed studying it. It's, it's such a great book. Uh, I think I've got a newfound appreciation for it. I've always liked the book, but... Um, Except for a few verses, you know, you always think of, you know, it's like, well, what are your favorite books of the Bible? Well, it's like the Psalms or John's Gospel or Romans or Hebrews, you know. You never really hear a lot of people say Galatians or, or 2 Timothy or anything like that. Um, so, uh, but I've, I have a newfound appreciation for this book. Uh, it is really deep. Uh, it is poignant even for, for us today. Um, the gospel never gets old, and um, we need to hear it over and over again because we tend to forget it. And that's what, I mean, that's the problem here in Galatians is they began to forget the gospel. They began to be led astray from the gospel, and that's what we're going to see here as we look at verses 6 through 10 of chapter 6. So I'll read them, and then we'll get going. So Paul here writes in Galatians 6, verse 6, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let, not, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there you have it, Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. Really, it kind of flows from what we've seen before. Uh, but there's enough material here that you can break it up into two parts like we are. Um, and you're going to see this idea of sowing and reaping in here, which, I mean, that's, that's a perfect metaphor for farmers, right? You know, sowing and reaping, planting and harvesting. Um, except in this case, uh, it's used for spiritual reasons here. But coming out of, of course, verses 1 through 5, this is, we're now in the practical section of Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, uh, which really probably begins in earnest in chapter 5, verse 13. Not that, it, not that the rest of it isn't practical, it's just he is now talking about how you should live flowing out of the fact that the gospel is through faith in Christ alone, that you are justified by faith, not by works of the law, that the law as far as a means to righteousness, is 
not a means to righteousness. It's kind of what he's getting at. It is not a way to earn righteousness before God. Because if you're going to live by the law, you have to live by the whole thing. And Paul earlier says, cursed is the one who does not abide by everything written in the law to do them. There is a curse upon the one who does not do all of the law. And that should drive a person to say, well, then I guess I'm cursed because I can't do all the law, right? Uh, or you delude yourself like the rich young ruler and says, I have done all those things from my youth. And then Jesus exposes that when he asks him a very simple question. Now, Paul's point is the law is a means of righteousness is no longer open to humanity. It, was, it, was, it hasn't been open to humanity since the fall, right? I mean, when Adam was created, he had the ability to obey God. He had the ability to disobey God, and that's what happened. He disobeyed God, and now the rest of us born since Adam have no ability to obey the law. Therefore, we need one who stands in our place, and that's Christ. Uh, that's why in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, but... But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, to indicate he came in flesh, he came as a human being, born under the law. He subjected himself to the law to live by its standards, to fulfill all righteousness, to stand in our place as the last Adam. And then because of that, because we are in Christ, we are set free. Uh, the law has served its purpose. The law was a guide. The law was a pedagogue. It was a, a, a school instructor, uh, a prison guard. All these metaphors Paul uses to talk about the law until Christ comes. Um, he talks about how the old covenant is obsolete. The old covenant is for slaves. <laughs> he says that in chapter 4. The new covenant is for the free children. We are children of the free woman, not of the slave woman. So we have been set free. But then in chapter 5, verse 13, it says that freedom that we have in Christ is not a freedom to fulfill our own desires. It is not, a, uh, it is not a, an, an opportunity, as he says here, for the flesh. It is a freedom now to obey out of love, out of gratitude, out of, uh, without any worry about condemnation from the law because the judgment has been paid already. So then he talks about walking by the Spirit. And then he talks about bearing one another's burdens, which we saw last time. Uh, if you find a brother or a sister who is not walking by the Spirit, if they are caught, as he says here, if you find anyone caught in any transgression, it is the duty of another brother or sister in Christ to come alongside that person, to restore that person, and uh, bear their burdens, help them to carry their loads, help them to carry... Their burdens. That's what the church is for. It is not a place to point fingers. Um, I'm sure maybe you were taught this when you were a kid or whatever. It's like for every finger you point at someone else, you got three others pointing back at you, right? Um, you know, kind of you know, silly stuff you hear like that. This is not a place to point fingers. It's not a place to, to say, well, you know, at least I'm not like that person over there who's caught in that kind of sin, you know, because we all have our, we all have our loads. That's what Paul says at the end of that passage in chapter uh, 6, verse 5. We have to bear our own loads. Each Christian has a load to bear. Each Christian has their own load, their own duties, their own sins that they fall uh, prey to. 
we have to bear our loads. But if you see someone burdening under something, then we come alongside out of love and help that brother or sister to bear that load. So then coming out of that, Paul is going to start talking about sowing and reaping, sowing to the Spirit or sowing to the flesh. Again, it's a dichotomy. Like you're walking by the Spirit or you're walking by the flesh. You're sowing to the Spirit, you're sowing to the flesh. You're doing one or the other. Uh, And he's going to talk about that. And we're going to mention this a little bit more later on. But the idea of sowing and reaping carries with it, particularly the context that Paul uses it here, carries the idea that not all judgment that God sends upon people in the world is sort of direct from heaven down to earth, okay? Some judgment comes as a consequence of actions that you perform. So they're they're sort of baked in the cake, if you will, of creation. If you engage in a particular sin for a long period of time, it's going to bear consequences. It has natural consequences. If you sow to the flesh, Paul's going to say you're going to reap destruction. I can give examples, but I think you, ha- you guys know plenty of examples. I don't want to gross people out or, or you know, talk about things such as that, but there are plenty of examples that we can think of that if you sow certain actions in your life, they're going to, you're going to reap consequences. You know, just for example, think of all the, you know, the rock stars from the 60s. How many of them died in their 40s because of too much sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? You know, the ones that live past that, those are the ones that you're like, wow, I can't believe so-and-so is still alive, you know. <laughs> uh, and I'm still firmly convinced that Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones is dead, that no one has told him that yet. Um, in fact, <laughs> just a, there was a funny meme I saw. They had four pictures It says, uh, rock stars back in the day and what they look like now and it showed you know I forget who it was one of them was Stevie Nicks another one was somebody else anyway they showed a young picture and an old picture for Keith Richards it was the same picture twice <coughs> anyway it's not on target is it so anyway we're going to talk about sowing and reaping that's that's the the, the main thrust of this passage uh, this morning And what we're going to see then is the one who is justified by grace through faith and is now experiencing freedom in Christ ought to sow to the Spirit and so reap eternal life. I misspelled sow. It's S-O-W, not S-O. They ought to sow to the Spirit and and therefore reap eternal life. We'll we'll explain what that means because it's not earning eternal life, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Anyway, first we're going to look at verse 6 where Paul here talks about supporting your teachers. And again, I think this flows more out of verses 1 through 5 than it does verses 6, you know, 7 through 10. Um, but it's kind of, you know, I saw some commentaries included with the previous section, some included with this section. But the point here is he's applying this principle of sowing and reaping to teachers and students in verse 6, where he says, uh, the one who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, when he says that, take that into context with what's going on in Galatians. Right? What, what has been going on in Galatians? Paul addresses this very early on in the letter, chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, I am shocked, I am amazed, I am astonished 
that you are now forgetting the gospel, that you're turning away from the gospel. In other words, false teachers have come in, and they're sowing their false teaching in, and Paul's like, you have forgotten the gospel. You have abandoned the gospel. You are in danger of falling away, if you will. I'm astonished, chapter 1, verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different, that is different in kind, gospel. And he's like, look, not that there's other, another one, but it's a false gospel. It's a perversion of the gospel. So the teachers that sow the good seed, the good teaching, the cr- proper teaching of the gospel, Paul says, you need to support these people. You need to share all good things with them. That word ought there, um, or must, implies an obligation on all good things. Meaning, you know, you, you commend them, you, you support them materially, uh, spiritually. Uh, the teacher's worthy of support is the idea here. Um, and I know, okay, I understand this sounds a little self-serving, right? Well, that's easy for you to say. You're the teacher. It's like, yes, I am. And um, it, I'm just teaching what the Bible says here, okay? I'm, I wouldn't be saying this. I'm not saying this that, because you guys don't support me. I'm just saying this because that's what Paul is saying here, that the, that the teacher is worthy of being supported by the one who is taught, uh, particularly the good things. Uh, that word share, where he says there, share all good things, um, it's a verb form of the word for, that we get for communion or fellowship, um, koinonia or koinoneo, you know, that idea of sharing, fellowshipping, communing with, uh, sharing all good things. Um, and also you have there uh, where he says the one who teaches and the one who is taught, that's also the same word. And, and that, that verb there is katekeo, okay? Catechism. You know, you hear the word catechism. That is a word brought into English out of Greek. It just means to instruct, to teach. So the one who teaches and the one who is taught and it's the same word there, the one who is catechizing and the one who is being catechized. And the point Paul is making here is a relatively simple one. In the church, the, uh, the teacher ought to receive his support, financial or otherwise, from those who are taught. Now this is something we see uh, in other places in Scripture. If you remember, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we saw this. Um, in relation to what was going on in the Corinthian context there. First Corinthians chapter 9. In fact, Paul uses the same language of sowing and reaping there. Chapter 9, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians. Now this is all in the context of, of Christian liberty. Of, of rights and duties and things like that. And, and he says there in chapter 9, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 9, uh, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? In other words, because he's an apostle, 
nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So when Paul says this in the Corinthian context, he is saying, look, um, as an apostle, I have the right to, uh, to, be, to receive support from you because I teach you the gospel. Now, he's going to go on and say, look, I, I'm not, I don't make use of that right. But he doesn't mean that the right still isn't there, that it's not still applicable. And he points back to the Old Testament and says, look, you, those who served in the temple, those who serve at the altar, they receive their support from the people. That, and that's exactly what happened, right? The Levites, the one tribe that God called aside for himself to serve in the temple, they had no inheritance in the land, right? When God was giving out the land of Canaan, he did not give a parcel of land to the Levites. Why? Because they were his possession. The Lord was their inheritance. That's what he says. Now, he also provides for them in the laws. So when the, when the people would bring their sacrifices or their offerings, a portion of that would then go and support the Levites and the priests working in the temple or the tabernacle. So Paul extrapolates that from the Old Testament into the New Testament and says, look, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, in the context of Corinthians, Paul is like, I do not make use of that right because I do not want to put an obstacle before you. And the reason he says that, if you remember when we looked at 1 Corinthians, there were false apostles coming in and they were kind of denigrating Paul, saying, like, he's not a good teacher. Look, he doesn't even get paid for his services. You know, and Paul's like, look, I, I, for, I, I, I didn't avail myself of that right because I wanted to present the gospel to you free of charge and not put an obstacle uh, in front of you. We see a similar thought that Paul says much later in his life in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And there he quotes from Luke and also from, I believe it's uh, Deuteronomy. Now, he's writing to his protege, Timothy. Uh, Timothy has uh, taken up uh, residence in Ephesus and is uh, kind of leading the church there. And Timothy's young, right? He's a young man. And Paul writes to encourage him because as a young man, he's probably receiving a little bit of pushback from some of the older people in the church. That's why he says, do not let them, you know, uh, take advantage of you because of your, your, your youth. Uh, but he goes on there in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, let the elders, right? And he told Timothy, establish elders in every church. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching, in teaching. So the minister is at the level of an elder. Uh, some churches see the teaching elder and the ruling elders as... Um, interchangeable. Some, like our denomination, make a distinction between a minister of the word and an elder, but the point is, from a ruling perspective, the minister and the elders are on the same level. Uh, the only difference is that the minister is in charge of teaching the word, preaching the word, administering the sacraments and those things, 
Uh, they are the ones who are able to do certain rites like marriage and burial and so on and so forth. Uh, but the point Paul makes here is like, look, the, the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor, and he says especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And In other words, they ought to receive their living from the gospel. And then he goes on and he gives a, a reason for it. Verse 18, for the scripture says, so he's quoting the Bible here, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. If you want your ox to do work well, don't starve it. Do not muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. Let him, let him feed. Same thing. Then he quotes from, I believe this is Luke 10, 17. I don't have a footnote that tells me the reference, but it's in red in my Bible, which means Jesus said it. Um, and he says, And the laborer deserves his wages. The laborer deserves his wages. So, it's not just Galatians 6, it's 1 Corinthians 9, it's 1 Timothy 5, it's Luke 10, it's Deuteronomy 25, it's the entire uh, priestly and Levitical system from the Old Testament. The point is, is that the one who labors in the church for the teaching and preaching of the word ought to receive their support, financial or otherwise, from those who are taught. And the point, if you, if you draw then, if you, if you see this in the context of what we saw last week in verses 1 through 5, if Christians are to carry one another's burdens, then part of that is sharing all good things with the one who teaches them. Uh, the idea is so that the one who teaches you can teach you well, you relieve them of the burden of financial need. So you pay them. So they don't have to work outside of the church in order to support their needs. And as I said before, this is, I don't say this as a rebuke, you guys support me very well. So I'm not saying this as a, a way to sort of, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, I need a raise, okay? Uh, in fact, whenever they've asked me for a raise, if I need a uh, raise, I say, no, I don't need a raise, and then they give me one anyway. So Now, it's an awesome responsibility, right? Uh, the ladies, you remember when we went through James, we looked at James 3, verse 1, where James says, not many of you ought to be teachers. Why? Because the greater responsibility falls on you if you teach. Why? Because you're teaching the Word of God. If you don't teach it well, then you lead the people astray, right? So especially given the weight and respect that the office, particularly of pastor, carries, um, you know, you, you see this so many times in so many churches and so many settings, right? The pastor says something, and the people just say, well, pastor said it, so therefore it must be true. It's like, you know, hopefully that's the case. <laughs> I mean, hopefully that's the case, but it's also the duty of the people to be discerning listeners and hearers, right? We have to be Bereans in that sense and, and, and test what, what I say to the scriptures, right? And if I go astray... Then it's you know the duty of the other elders in the church to say that that wasn't right you know whether it's something I taught or something I did that's not right you need to change that or or fix that uh, there is a responsibility of the teacher particularly when you're talking about a teacher in a church to teach the word well to to uh, what does Paul say in First Timothy two right to handle or Second Timothy two handle properly to rightly divide the word of God. 
right? In fact, I mean, three, three, three verses I, I kind of use to sort of um, shape what I like to do, right? First is my, you know, the duty that is and the, and the burden that's put on me, right? Second Timothy 2.15, where he says, do your, do your best. This is Paul talking to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Why do we need to rightly handle the word of truth? Because as 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, it's, all of it is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Therefore, then, what is the charge? Well, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, uh, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's a command by Paul to Timothy, and I take that as a command to me as well. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's, That's the job of one who is called to minister the word of God to God's people. They have to rightly handle it because it's God's word and therefore they need to preach it. They need to preach it in season, out of season, whether you want to hear it or not, uh, not tickling your ears, not saying what you want to hear, saying what you need to hear. Therefore, support your teachers. Which I said, again, you do a very commendable job of doing. All right. Enough self-promotion. Let's look at the second point, verses 7 through 9. Sowing and reaping. This is really the main thrust of the passage. So he gets the heart of the passage, and that's the principle of sowing and reaping that we talked about earlier in verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. There's your principle. Then he gives two examples. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the f- uh, flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We'll get to verse 9 in a moment. So he says here, God, he begins by saying, God is not mocked and that we should not be deceived or literally led astray. The word there um, is planao. I've mentioned this before. Uh, it, it's, we get the word planet from it. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with deception? Well, when, when the early astronomers back in the Renaissance, or back even in the Greek uh, era, uh, when they saw the planets, well, they, they saw them as kind of wandering around in the sky. They just kind of, they moved around a lot. So they were called the wanderers, right? And then that word then becomes sort of a metaphor for being deceived, being led astray. You're wandering off uh, a path or whatever. Do not be mocked, and, and, and we should not be deceived. And we think about how easy it is in our fallen humanity to be deceived, to be led astray, particularly when it comes to sin and its consequences, because that's what Paul's getting at here in verses eight and, uh, in 7 and 8. We could be led astray. We could be deceived. Um, we always think we can get away with it, right? I'll do this, and I'm not going to, you know, if I, you know, no one saw me do this, so I can get away with it, right? And he's like, look, God is not mocked. If, even if no one else sees your sin, God sees your sin. I think of the example, you don't need to turn there, I'm going to turn there because I want to reference it, but in Numbers 32, 
You're like, well, what's happening in Numbers 32? I'll tell you what's happening in Numbers 32. The people are about to go. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. But they're still on the east side of the Jordan River. And as they have been moving northward to get up to the plains of Moab, uh, they conquer um, the Moabites and they conquer the Ammonites. And then the, the two of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad, say, this is wonderful land here. We think we'll settle here and you know, we'll take this as our inheritance. And Moses is like, you could take it as your inheritance, but don't think that you don't have to help your other brothers get their inheritance once they cross over into the Jordan. So in, in chapter 32, um, he goes on and says, um, Moses said to the people of Gad and, and to the people of Reuben, this is chapter 32, verse 6, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you, be, uh, why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eschol, they saw the land, they, uh, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled. And he goes on, and he says, look, you need to fight with your brothers. And they say, yes, we will do that. We will, we will, do so. we will, we will definitely fight with our brothers. And then uh, in chapter 32, verse, um, let's start in verse 20. He says, okay, he says to them, if you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. Verse 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. I remember an older, from a previous church, a pastor hammered this point home. Beware your sin will find you out. And, and that's the point. It's like, if, even if no one else sees your sin, the Lord sees your sin. And, and beware, your sin will find you out. You cannot mock God. You cannot deceive God. And you cannot be deceived thinking you can get away, that you can somehow, you're the one who's going to avoid the consequences of sowing to the flesh. You are not going to be that way. Sinners think they can mock God, but their sin will find them out. You see this in Romans 1, right? When Paul gives the whole list of all the things that God's wrath is being revealed against. And those people think that they can just eat, drink, and be merry, and, and nothing's going to happen to them. But God is like, no, you're going to reap the consequences of that sin. Your sin will find you out. And then again, given the Galatian context here, consider the mocking of God and his law when the Judaizers come in and they teach that one could be justified by works of the law. That's what the Judaizers were coming in, and in a sense, that's mocking God by saying, you can be justified by works of the law. You can add works to faith, and that's how you're going to be justified. It's not faith alone. Yes, you have to have faith, but you've got to add these works in, and that's mocking God because God says no. Right? Well, that's what Paul's been saying all throughout this book. If you're going to go back to the law, you're going back to a curse. 
And this is sowing to the flesh. We'll get to that in a moment. Paul then goes on to say, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, we use this in the context of giving, right? You know, particularly the televangelist, right? You got to sow that seed. <laughs> you got to sow that seed and receive that blessing. You'll reap that blessing if you sow that seed, you know? And, and of course, the seed is always money, and it's usually in denominations of hundreds and thousands, not, <laughs> not ones and fives, okay? You know, you know, don't give me that money that clinks in the plate. I want the folding kind of money, right? That's kind of what they, what they say. The point, of course, of the sowing and reaping, as I said earlier, is that God has baked consequences to certain actions into creation. If you engage in a sinful behavior for a prolonged period of time, you will reap necessary consequences, And this is in context of judgment and reward. As I mentioned earlier, judgment isn't always God raining fire down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, right? (laughs) That is judgment. The flood is judgment. But judgment also comes in the consequences of your actions and the results of your actions. And the Bible bears witness to this in several places. Job, you can note these references down, Job 4.8 where he says, as I have seen, this is, uh, this is one of Job's friends, as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So if you plow sin, if you sow sin, you're going to reap uh, the same. Or in the book of Proverbs, there's plenty of places in the Proverbs one can go to, but in the very beginning of the Proverbs, in chapter 1, verse 31, Where here he says, uh, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, uh, would have none of my counsel and despise all my reproof. There, verse, 31, uh, verse 31, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Because they did not sow righteousness, because they did not sow a fear of the Lord, they're going to reap the consequences of that. I like what Hosea says. He's prophesying against Israel and says in chapter 8, verse 7, For they have sowed the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Okay, I love that verse. That's a good one. (laughs) You sow the wind, you sow trouble, you're going to reap more trouble. You're going to reap the whirlwind. And this is all in context of Israel being covenant breakers and Deuteronomy 28 saying all the things that's going to happen to them if they break the covenant. Or later on in Hosea, chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. So there, that's a call now to repentance. You've got to break up the hard-heartedness. You've got to break up the the ground of your heart so that the, the Lord can then rain righteousness upon you. But if you sow for yourself righteousness, you will reap steadfast love. Again, the consequences there. And then in a classic passage in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, a passage that for some reason gives a lot of people fits, but it's really pretty easy to understand if you understand what the Bible is saying. 
Again, sowing and reaping, but not using that exact language. But here Paul says in Romans 2, verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. In other words, you're going you're to earn what you work for. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. To the Jew first, also for the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, a lot of people hear that and say, well, then can we earn our righteousness? No. Because to the, who, who is the one who does well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and immortality? Well, no one does that. That's the point Paul's making in Romans 2, because in chapter 3 he says, no one seeks for righteousness, no one seeks God, no one does this. But the point Paul is making here in this passage is that judgment, we are judged by our works. We are judged by our works. One more verse because I can't resist. And because I wrote it down, so I feel if I wrote it down, I probably should read it. It's, uh, Proverbs 22, verse 8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his, God's fury, will fall. Again, this idea of sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. Bible's clear. And Paul makes, then, makes this clear in verse 8. If you sow to the flesh, that is, if you allow the old nature to have its way, if you give in to the flesh, if you do not resist the flesh, if you do not resist the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, then you're going to reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, if you allow the Spirit to have its way, you're going to reap, if you will, eternal life. If you cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in your life. If you cultivate the flesh, you reap destruction. And, and that's seen again in Galatians in two ways. One, in works of the law, right? Again, this idea that you can somehow earn your righteousness through law-keeping, Paul says no, and that's going to reap destruction. But, he, but also if you start doing works of the flesh that he outlines in chapter 5. Right? Uh, the works of the flesh are manifest, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, so on and so forth. If you, reap that, if you sow that, you're going to reap destruction as well. But if you cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, right? The gift of God is eternal life. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you cultivate that, you will reap eternal life. And again, I want to make sure that we are careful here. Paul is not saying you can earn eternal life by sowing to the Spirit. That this is where you need to have an understanding of what the Bible is saying, not just here, but all throughout the Scriptures. You have to have a good understanding. Because this is where, you know, I, I read a verse, and it's like, okay, well, I can sow and reap eternal life, therefore I can earn eternal life. Well, you need to take that verse into the context, not only... I mean, Paul has already said that in Galatians, you can't, right? The entire Bible says you can't. <laughs> so this verse has to mean something other than you can work and earn eternal life. I think what Paul here has in mind is the idea of how do you, where do you see your treasures, right? Think of Matthew 6. Your tre you have treasures on earth, you have treasures in heaven. If you are sowing to the Spirit, in other words, then you are storing and, and working for treasures in heaven where moth will not eat, where rust will not destroy, and where thieves will not break in and steal. 
Or think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 where he says, the foundation is Christ, and if you build upon that foundation, he says, with gold, silver, and precious stones, you'll reap a reward. If you build on it with wood, hay, and stubble, well, guess what? The fires are going to burn that up. You'll, you will you know, make it through. You'll receive salvation. But everything you've labored for in this world will burn up. So, it, it, again, this kind of goes to where is your focus? Where is your, are you building earthly kingdoms? Are you, are you sowing to this world? Are you, are you looking at this world as something to, to invest in, as something to, to labor in? Or are you trying to sow spiritual um, fruit? Are you trying to, to reap eternal rewards? Are you focusing on heavenly fruit? What are you giving your life to? This world is passing away along with its treasures, right? You know, I mean, so practical, practical example. Should the church then be working to make our American society better? I mean, we certainly want a better society, and I think Christians have an obligation to vote their consciences, but should the church be engaged in that? that this is where... The gospel kind of got lost in the 19th and early 20th century because people saw the needs that were out there. Well, there's a lot of poor people. We ought to go feed them. We ought to go clothe them. Wonderful things. But if you're not giving them the gospel, what's going to happen to those people? They're going to go to hell clothed and well-fed. Okay? Well, they're, they're homeless. Put a roof over their head. Great! Now they're going to go to hell with a roof over their head. You've got to give them the gospel. That's the point. The, 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 the church needs to be about... Sowing spiritual fruit. Yes, take care of the needs. Yes, do those as well as sow to the Spirit. Paul is saying there. The exhortation of the Christian life, or the exhortations, I should say, of the Christian life, all flow from our justification. They are not meritorious, but they they do the work toward loving one another. That's what we're called to as Christians. We are called to love one another. And Paul says here, look, In verse 9, do not grow weary. Do not grow weary of doing good. Do not grow weary. While the Christian life is a life of faith by the Spirit, it's not passive. It's not a passive life. You're not sitting there with your feet kicked up, you know, sipping pina coladas, waiting for the Lord to come, okay? That's not the Christian life. You know, part of me kind of wishes that it was. It would be great to sit on a beach sipping pina coladas, waiting for the Lord to come. But that's not what we're called to do. No. Again, Paul's using the, the terms here, sowing, reaping, sowing, reaping. Right? Farmers. Is farming hard work? All right, farmers don't want to speak up. They're nodding their heads if you're not listening. Okay? They are nodding their heads. Yes, farming's hard work. You don't just throw seed out there and then wait for the plants to come up, right? You've got to, you got to, you know, you got to, Nurture that seed, you gotta fertilize, you gotta spray, you gotta make sure everything's done, you gotta water it. And, you know, it's a lot of hard work. And now, of course, yeah, you got these big machines that do a lot of the work for you, but you're, it's still a lot of hard work. Same thing in the Christian life, right? We gotta go out there, we gotta do good to one another. Again, these aren't meritorious works. We are free to do this. Christ has set us free from the, uh, the law to do these works of loving one another, to bearing one another's burdens, to doing good, and so on and so forth. And then, finally, verse 10. Do good to everyone. 
So as, as long as, we, as yeah, so then as we have opportunity, verse 10, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are in the household of faith. That's the final exhortation in this passage, is to do good toward everyone. Now, if you can make sense of the tortured English in the sentence here, there is never not a good time to do good. <laughs> All right, I kind of threw a double negative in there, right? In other words, it's always the right time to do good. There's never not a good time to do good. The Christian is not like the world in only doing good to those who do good to us. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Look, if you, if you do good to those who are kind to you, what reward do you have? It's like nothing. The sinners do that. Right? The unbelieving world does that. But if you do good to those who do not repay you, if you do good to those who hate you, ah, now, now you're starting to, to show the heart of Jesus Christ. Because what did Jesus do? Romans 5. He came into this world and died for us while we were what? While we were perfect? <laughs> while we were good? While we were earning it? No, he came into the world and died for us while we were still sinners. When we were still enemies with God, that's when he came. I said it before, I'll say it again. When we were at our worst, that's when God gives us his best. So we have a call to love neighbor as ourselves, and neighbor is not narrowly defined. That's the, that's the lesson from the Good Samaritan, right? Who's my neighbor? So the guy was willing to, to love his neighbor, so he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Right? And Jesus, of course, tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the idea there is, you know, don't define neighbor narrowly. We should do good to everyone but then he says, especially the household of faith, especially to fellow Christians, right? If, if you're showing good to people outside the church, but you're kind of rude and obnoxious to people inside the church, well, that's, that's not good. That's not good either. Uh, the household of faith. Um, you know, Jesus said it in John chapter 13, the world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Um, and that's the point. The world will know we are disciples if we love one another. The world will give glory to God when they see our good works. You're like, really? Yeah, well, that's what our catechism says, right? Question 86. The Heidelberg, why do we do good works? Well, the catechism gives us um, four reasons why we do good works. He says, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that with our whole life we show ourselves thankful to God for his blessing. So that's reason one we do good works. We are showing gratitude toward the Lord for his blessing. Reason number two, that he be glorified through us. God is glorified when we do good works and when we show forth obedience. And then also that we ourselves may be assured of our faith. Now, Works are not the ground of our assurance, but works certainly help toward our assurance. If you see your life changing, and you're like, wow, I mean, I remember before I, you know, I was kind of a cantankerous old, you know, curmudgeonly SOB, and now I'm a little less cantankerous. You know, that's, that's the fruit of the Spirit, and that could bring uh, some assurance. And then finally, by our godly walk, win also others to Christ. People see our good works, they give glory to our Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus says. I need to bring this to a close. 
So bearing the fruit of the Spirit comes as the Spirit works in us through our sowing to the Spirit. But always bear in mind that this is how we express our freedom in Christ. This is not meritorious. This is always an outflow. We have to keep that in mind. We are not saved by works. We are not justified by our works. Our works come as a response to the gospel. They're always the fruit of the Spirit. And again, in the Galatian context, uh, the false teaching that was sown was reaping a harvest of death and corruption. That's why Paul comes in and has to correct them. The good teaching of the gospel sown is reaped for eternal life. And of course, the remaining flesh in us wars against the Spirit working in us, so there will be always be this temptation to sow to the flesh. But Paul says, look, there's no eternal value in that. So the call in for us is to never tire, never grow weary in doing good to everyone, especially fellow Christians. And I think this, more than anything, marks us off from the rest of the world. But then as far as the gospel is concerned, our salvation is always and only by faith in Christ. Do not think our good works merit anything. God is pleased to reward even our feeble good works in Christ. And that's the, that's the point I want to leave you with, okay? The idea of the good works. You know, we think we're earning some kind of reward. God is pleased to reward our good works. He's not obligated to reward our good works. Right? He rewards our good works because of his graciousness. It's, you know, we offer these kind of stumbling, fumbling, bumbling good works to God, and God is like, yes, I will reward that in Christ. Well, we'll stop here because I'm at time. So we will finish the book of Galatians, Lord willing, next week. How about that? Galatians will be done. All right, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful uh, for Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we pray, Lord, that these lessons, particularly the one about sowing and reaping, will bear fruit in our lives. Help us, Lord, to sow to the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to do good to everyone, particularly those in the household of faith. And now, Lord, as we get ready to worship you, we pray that you will find our worship pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.